0: Relationships. Our lives revolve around them. Family, friends, work or romance. They are complicated and messy. And don't always work out like we want. God made us for each other. Maybe he can show us a better way to be together. This is Not Your Average Relationship Talk. Good to see you all here tonight. Well, um, I'm going to ask a simple question. How many of you love being New Zealanders? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, How many, um, I I want to work out who's been the New Zealander for the shortest amount of time. Okay, so um, who's been a New Zealander for less than 10 years? Okay, keep your hands up. Oh, stand up. Yeah, stand up. Who's been a New Zealander for less than 10 years? Would you stand up, everybody? Stand up those for less than 10 years. Cool. Oh, that's great. Hey, let's give, them a, let's give them a hand. Let's give them a warm welcome. Yeah, fantastic. All right, take a seat. That's, that's brilliant. It's great to have new New Zealanders amongst us. Um, one of the things that I want to... Well, sorry, the main thing I want to talk about tonight is about our bicultural journey. As a nation, there's a sense in which we have two parents, We have Māori and we have European, we have Pākehā. And like any family, unless those two parents get along, the family's going to be dysfunctional. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Because uh, back in 1840, there was a relationship that began under what we call the Treaty of Waitangi. And it's been a relationship that's been the foundation, the foundational document of our nation. And it continues to serve us into the future, even though it's had some controversy. And uh, many people are raised in an environment where they have an opinion, but it's an uninformed opinion. You know, people you hear on the radio talking about um, how, how, how Maori are being given land and being given uh, their tribes are being given money for, for payments for things in the past, and people go, "What's all that about? How is it that, that in our nation is happening now? Are Maori privileged and get?" get grants? Do they get money when the Europeans don't? And so this starts to create an ill-informed and uninformed uh, disrespect or even a prejudice amongst our nation between our first nation father and our first nation mother, depending which way you want to see them. And so what I want to talk tonight about is how it is that we became the nation that we are and how it is that Uh, this city has been shaped by forces that have gone on before us in our history back in the 1860s and 1870s. I just want to show you just how significant what our history has done for our city uh, because it's going to be a very, very um, revealing conversation tonight when we learn about what it is that we still live with as a result of some trauma that has happened in the past. So uh, let me start by talking about the Treaty of Waitangi. The Treaty of Waitangi was uh, re- signed off in 1840. But our story goes back further than that. Uh, it goes back to a time, pre-colonial times, when uh, a lot of whalers and sealers came to New Zealand basically to, to uh, take advantage of the natural resources that were here in New Zealand. Uh, a lot of whaling stations were set up around the coast, uh, seals were uh, harvested down at the bottom of the South Island in particular, down in the Fiordland area. But one of the most popular places to come was a place called, uh, we know it now as Paihe, Kororareka, uh Paihia Russell. And uh, these were the areas where the sailors came and they resupplied their ships. But as sailors coming off months and months in the, uh, in the ocean, on the ocean, uh, these guys were pretty rough and ready. They were looking for a drink and they were trying to find a girlfriend or two. And it was known that Russell was called the hellhole of the Pacific. The hellhole of the Pacific. It was a place was just absolutely rabid licentiousness. And you can go home and look that up in the dictionary if you want or on your phone, if you can spell it. Uh, she was a wild old place. And then there came a season when a, a ship called the Boyd came to New Zealand and there was a whole lot of confusion about a, a Maori, young Maori boy who was on the ship, and he was the son of a, um, of a chief, and he'd been given a flogging while he was on the boat for misbehavior. The father, the chief, got wind of this and thought that this was inappropriate and, uh, and boarded or attempted to board the ship, and they set it on fire. And there was a massacre of the whole crew. It was known as the Boyd Massacre. And because of that, the reputation of Māori throughout the Pacific and throughout the world was seen as people who were aggressive, savages, don't go anywhere near that country because you'll do so at the risk of your own life. And so the whalers and the sealers kept away for a bit. Uh, yet there was a, um, a, um, a move by the missionaries to try to reach out to New Zealand. And, uh, and so this occurred, and, and what happened was the beginning of a, a better relationship with Maori and the Europeans was established, and I, I'm trying to not go into too much detail tonight because I've got a lot I want to cover. But what happened was essentially the missionaries established this relationship between uh, the Crown, uh, the, the Europeans, and the Maori, and the missionaries started to translate the Maori language into uh, written form, and they wrote the scriptures up and uh, and started to evangelise New Zealand. And the Maori took to the gospel like no other nation had done so beforehand. Uh, From that period of time, from the early 19th century, around about the the time of 1815 through to 1850, 1860, over 50% of New Zealand Maori saw themselves as Christians. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And the gospel spread in ways that just absolutely blew the missionaries' minds. You see, what was happening was uh, a lot of um, missionary work up in the north had happened, and a lot of the tribes up there had become Christians. And they started releasing their slaves, slaves that they had caught and captured on raiding parties in previous years. And so what happens is these slaves are set free, and they go back to their tribes where they've come from, and they say, we thought you were dead. How come you're alive? And they said, well, uh, we have to tell you about this person of Jesus. And missionaries talked about how it is that they went over valleys into, into areas that missionaries had never gone before. And as they came over the hills, they would hear the Māori singing hymns in their garden as they worked before the European had arrived. God was doing something very powerful, very spectacular in New Zealand. And so in 1840, when Governor Hobson turned up, as part of the the British colonial effort to try to establish a British colony here, uh, he found that the the missionaries had already established a fantastic working relationship with the Māori and the chiefs, particularly. And so in just a very short period of time, the Treaty of Waitangi was drawn up, and the chiefs gathered at Waitangi up in Northland, and in doing so, they looked to the missionaries and they said, is it good for us They talked to Henry Williams, one of the main missionaries from the Christian Missionary Society, and they looked at him and they said, is it good for us to sign this? And they called him Father. Father, is it good for us to sign this? This was Honeheke, the first guy to sign the treaty. And Henry Williams looked at him and said, yes, it's good for you and it's good for all of us. We'll be one nation. And so Honeheke signed it, and other chiefs signed it on that day, around about 35 chiefs that day. And then there were copies made of the treaty, and missionaries took the treaty out to the tribes of this country and had over 500 signatures added to the original treaty. And so this treaty was a treaty that said, we will submit our sovereignty to the crown, but we will have rights over our land, over our rivers and over the oceans. So they had full rights, customary rights of land ownership. And so that was how this treaty started. However, what happens, of course, is that uh, human greed starts to kick in. And the Maori weren't releasing land quick enough or in ways that were appropriate for the many settlers that started to come to New Zealand. And there was a a few corrupt things going on. There was one particular corrupt individual by the name of uh, William Wakefield. William Wakefield was sitting in jail trying to work out how to get rich. It was in London. And he decided that he had set up a company that would sell land in New Zealand, even though he didn't own any. And he established this thing called the New Zealand Company. And he made arrangements for people to go ahead of him and negotiate to buy land. At the same time, advertising in the UK that land was for sale for people who wanted to venture to this beautiful land of milk and honey. And therefore, they would be given or or be able to buy for cheap uh, plots of land. And in doing so, he caused hundreds and thousands of people to come to New Zealand when New Zealand wasn't ready for it. And so land was not available, And some of the land that he said he had purchased, he hadn't purchased. And so therefore, this caused conflict right at the outset between Māori and Pākehā who came. This was the early part of our New Zealand history. There was a lack of land, and land that had been traditionally owned by Māori, even though they were moving around from one area to the next. You know, Europeans had this attitude, if you're not living on it, therefore it's not yours. Whereas others would say, well, we... We planted crops on that for a few years, and land has to be fallow, so we move off it, and we'll come back to it in a few years' time. But it's our land. And then, there, of course, there were a few corrupt chiefs who were selling their cousin's land on the other side of the hill, uh, and things like this. So it all starts getting pretty messy. But this started to lead to, um, to a real tension between the Maori and the crown, the British crown. And I want to isolate a particular region now. I want to talk about the Waikato. The uh, place in Hamilton, the Waikato Tainui people, and, uh, and their problems. What happened is, after a period of time, the, 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 um, the Maori realized that if they were going to have any say in this land that was changing around them, they thought maybe we, like the United Kingdom, we need to have our own king. And so they worked out amongst themselves who could be the king. Who could be the king to represent Māori when it comes to negotiation about land and discussing things like land sales and in a way try to protect their, their influence and their mana? And uh, lots of chiefs were asked if they wanted to do this job and they said, no, 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 I can't do it. I'm too localised. I like my area. This is who I am. I don't, I don't feel right to do this. Ultimately, the responsibility fell uh, to a, a chief in the Waikato called Potato Teferofiro. Potato Teferofiro uh, was an elderly man and uh, he took this responsibility quite seriously. And uh, it says here that, um, that Patato, uh, when he was inducted as the king, I want to read to you what was read over him at the time he became king. It said, Patato, Patato, this day I create you king of the Maori people you and queen victoria shall be bound together the religion of christ shall be the mantle of your protection the law shall be the mat for your feet forever and ever onward so as you can see even from these first few words that i've spoken about uh, our early days we had the missionaries establishing this relationship between the crown and the maori the missionaries were essentially the midwife that helped give birth to the treaty can you see that imagery Okay you've got a mother and a father and the treaty was what was birthed out of that relationship and the Maori uh, the, the missionary was the midwife and we can see the influence of the gospel to the point where when a new king is now pronounced for the Maori people he is doing that as an act of uh, 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 under the sovereign god under Christ himself so you can see the influence of christianity upon the people in our land and so as I said before New Zealand was seen as an incredibly successful mission endeavour. No other nation like it had ever experienced revival under the name of Jesus like our nation had. However, this problem of land became increasingly tense. And, uh, and when this king was announced, it became a, a good excuse to really start to drill down upon the Maori people as far as the crown was concerned. Now, what was going on was Governor Gray, who'd been sent out from the UK to govern the land, said we can't have two, two kings, essentially. We can't have Queen Victoria and another king. We've already got one king, uh, sorry, one queen and Queen Victoria. We can't have another king. And so he started to intimidate the Tainui people, the Waikato people, where this king was, was living at Turangawaiwai in Narawahia. And uh, he, he said that your folks, your people, have to submit to the authority of Queen Victoria. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We've got our own king. You've got your queen. We'll meet as equals, which reflected more of the, uh, the original principle and spirit of the treaty. So what happens is Governor Gray gets hold of uh, Queen Victoria and the military over in the UK, and they start sending thousands of troops over to New Zealand to start to reinforce the sense in which they're losing their, their authority here. And so the troops started landing in Auckland, and they start building a road, a road down into the Waikato. And uh, we know the road now as the Great South Road. People heard of the Great South Road in Auckland? okay? And, and on the Great South Road, you'll find that there's a number of roads called Redoubt Road, R-E-D-O-U-B-T, Redoubt. A redoubt is a fortress, okay? essentially a little military uh, uh, outpost and so all the way along this great south road there were redoubts and they built this road and they kept getting closer and closer to the Waikato and you know the the Bombay Hills that are the big hill you go over before you come into Auckland or out of Auckland dangerous road. The dangerous road. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is dangerous. Eh? If you go too fast Tasha, so you slow down All right, so we got this road here and uh, It's pushing out closer and closer to the land of the Tainui. And the chief in the Tainui at the time said, if you cross over the Mangatāwhiri stream, which is in Pocono, just on the other side of uh, Auckland, on the other side of the Bombay Hills, coming into the Waikato, if you cross over that stream with your, your military, we will deem that as an act of war against the Tainui people. So, being clever, clever Pākehā, what they did is they... In, in, in Wellington at the time, the Parliament passed a law called the New Zealand Settlements Act. which sounds pretty innocuous, doesn't it? It sounds pretty simple. The New Zealand Settlements Act doesn't sound like anything too bad in that. But the New Zealand Settlements Act worked like this. If you resist any occupation made by the British military, that will be deemed as an act of treason against the Crown. And you will be punished by the confiscation of your land. The law was made on one given day, and it wasn't gazetted. Now, to be gazetted means that it hits the press, hits the media, and everybody learns about it. It was made, and the following day, the British troops marched upon the Waikato people. So the Waikato people, when they took up arms, as they'd threatened to do, against the crown, against the British troops, they were, in fact, breaking the law of the New Zealand Settlements Act, and it means immediately they would be punished with the confiscation of their land. Now, at the time, there were around about 18,000 troops, British troops, around about 4,000 Maori troops. And so, over a period of time, the troops got on the Waikato River and they came down the river, and there were many, many battles. And we think, okay, these battles are going on. What has that got to do with um, our history here, as I mentioned earlier on. Well, it went like this. There was a whole lot of sympathy and a whole lot of empathy and a whole lot of compassion and a whole lot of anger against the British for the fact that they had invaded the Waikato and they had taken upon themselves to, to, to push back on their king because this was a New Zealand Maori king. It wasn't a Waikato king. It wasn't just a Tainui Nui tribe king. It was someone that all the, all the, all the uh, tribes had agreed would represent them. And so what was happening... His troops were coming from as far away as Gisborne, the uh, Ngāti Porau tribes coming up from Gisborne, Uh, uh, Ngāti Awa coming up from Wellington, all the way through from uh, uh, the the Waitra district. We'd been a lot of fighting around about New Plymouth and places like that, Wanganui. They were all coming up. And also, uh, Ngāti Rangi, Ngāti Rangi Nui, Ngāti Pukinga, who are here, the tribes here in Tauranga, they had started to send troops over the Kaimais with food to resupply the troops and, and add some more muscle power to the troops who were fighting the British. So you can see how it is that this supply line over the Kaimais became great, a great concern to the British troops because this was a major resupply line, and so therefore if they can cut off the supply line, it would cause the Tainui Nui troops and those who had joined with them to not be as effective in the fight. Does it make sense? Okay. So, General Cameron was sent down here with 1,800 troops. And when he arrived, he arrived to the only English-British settlement in this Taronga district. And that was at the end of the peninsula in Taronga now by the harbour, an area we know as the Elms Mission House. Okay, so the Elms Mission area had been had purchased land. It had purchased 1,000 acres from the end, basically where the Harbour Bridge starts now, okay, if you can picture this, all the way back to Gate Park, okay, just a little bit past the Taronga Girls College, okay, so that 1,000 acres was owned by the Christian Missionary Society, the Anglican Church. And so what happens is the British troops turn up under General Cameron and Colonel Greer, and they camp on this land that had been traditionally, or sorry, not traditionally, had up and recently been used by the church. The same church that had been educating people in things that are Christian. And um, and so what happens is it starts to, cause a real, real sense of conflict because here we have Maori who have become Christians who now saw the British troops living on sacred ground, threatening and intimidating. Okay, and so this started to cause real tension, as you'd imagine. So can we trust the church? Can we trust Alfred Brown, who was the the archdeacon leading? And uh, there was one particular guy, uh, Henare Taratoa, who was a deacon of the Anglican church. And he lived out here, just just below from where we are now, in the Wairo Wairo area, Okay, just on the river down here. And uh, he could see, like others, that, that the British were angling for a fight and so he wrote down, as a Christian, he says, here are the rules of engagement for our fighting. Christian rules of engagement for our fighting. And he says, you know, you, we will not take up arms against women and children. Uh, we will not kill those who are injured. We will tend to them. And he sent this off to uh, Governor Brown at the time he was the governor, and uh, and he didn't respond at all. He didn't really know quite what to make of this. But the um, the British realized that they were trying to and realizing they were trying to stop this this traffic of supply over the, over the, um, the Kaimais, that they had to take on this force of soldiers that were living here in Tauranga. And so the, the soldiers uh, were getting ready for battle. the Maori knew that this battle was coming and so they established a, uh, a fortress at Gate It's the area we now know as Gate Pa where St George's Anglican Church is sitting on the top there in, in Tauranga. And so, uh, on the evening before this battle took place, the the, uh, uh, Archdeacon, Alfred Brown, he gathered with him at the Elms, nine officers who were going to lead a military campaign against the the Gate, Pa, and Fortress the following day. Nine of them ate together. Alfred Brown served them communion at the end of the evening. And the following day... The battle began, and they started to throw uh, high high explosive shells, uh, well, what they had as high explosive shells in the day, into the par. What the British didn't know is that the Maori had worked out how to defend themselves, and so they dug tunnels underneath the uh, palisade, underneath the uh, the, uh, the the fortress, the wall, and so they were under there, and there was around about 250 troops under there and 13 of them were killed during the time of this bombardment. Uh, Not having any um, resistance coming back at them, uh, Colonel Booth, who was leading the charge, decided that this was going to be an easy battle. And so 250 to 300 troops went up the hill and they started to break into the par at at an area where the wall had fallen down. And they were met with a Huge level of resistance because the Maori jumped out of their hiding places, having been totally or well, largely unaffected by the by the bombing because they were underneath the ground, deep underground, and uh, and ripped into the British. And it was a it was a huge defeat for the British, and they were highly embarrassed, and the papers wrote them up as being cowards. But even in the midst of this battle, Maori came out and attended. Um, uh, the wounded at night. Colonel Booth, eight out of nine people who had eaten at the archdeacon's table the night before were killed that day. Eight out of nine. All the officers essentially were killed that day. And so it was deemed to be an absolute abject failure, absolute miserable failure. So the troops regathered, the British troops regathered, and the um, the Maori troops Shot throughout the back of the par and escaped from any any further um, action that was going to happen the next day, and uh, and and, and uh, basically the British just came back to the elms in the area and licked their wounds and tried to work out what it is that had gone on. Two months later, they got word the British troops got word that there was a group gathering uh, at a place called Teranga, and um, and so they sent out a group and they found Māori there trying to build another fort, trying to build another pa. And they caught them out in the open, and they killed over 100 of them. 108 Māori were killed that day, and the trenches that they had dug to build this fortress actually became their burial ground at the end. And so this is what happened in our city. And and, and this this, uh, has left a huge scar upon our city. Because I want you to try to understand what it would be like for Maori to have found that their priest, their minister, had accommodated the British troops. And they're like, hold on, aren't you a Christian? Yes, I am. But poor old Alfred Brown was caught in the middle. He was caught there as the archdeacon, as somebody who was both British, but loved his church, largely Maori. But when the British came in military might, he had no choice but to accommodate them. And so he seemed like this huge contradiction. And I, I would hate, I think of what it would be like, I would hate to have been put in that position, wouldn't you? As, a, as, a, as, a, as an Englishman, as a minister, saying, oh, my goodness, I have got these split loyalties everywhere. And so it was a very very, very, very difficult time for them. Not only did that happen, but immediately after those battles had been, had been fought, uh, the military and the government confiscated the majority of the land that was owned by the church. So that 1,000 acres the majority of that land was taken by the crown and it was distributed to the soldiers who decided to live there as small little farmlets where they would just uh, have a a small farm in in true British tradition, maybe only 10 acres. And so all of a sudden, this place that was a sacred place, a sacred sanctuary for Māori became a place that was tapu and no one was going to go there again. And the church... Lost its credibility, as you would imagine. Okay, and so so this is what's going on. And I just want to expand that story a little bit further, but with um, without the help of the other other tribes, the the British troops pushed, pushed and pushed the uh, the Tainui tribes, and uh, and and they retreated. The Maori retreated out of Hamilton uh, into the areas like uh, Te Kewiri, Tomurinui, Kiki, Otorahonga, an area that we now call the king country. So you know why it's called the king country? Well, you just found out, because the Māori king found some uh, peace there. And the Māori king and his tribe lived there for the better part of 30 years before they came out of hiding again. But I just want you to imagine something. Imagine, and I'm just going to use this for illustrative purposes. Imagine if in World War II, the Germans had won. And in New Zealand, maybe in this city, we had streets like um, Erwin Rommel Street, Hitler Avenue, Goebbels Town. Just trying to think of a few German leaders, would that be a hard, bit of pill to swallow? It would, wouldn't it, when you're living under an oppressive rule? Well, I say that because that's really the only way I can come to grips with what some of the legacy is that we have in our city. You see, we have right down the main road of our city we have Cameron Road, named after General Cameron, who led that battle. We have at the far end of town a suburb called Greerton, named after Colonel Greer, who led the troops in the Battle of Teranga killed the 108 soldiers. We have uh, Durham Street, named after the Durham Light Brigade that served as one of the military um, uh, groups, that one, of, one of the battalions. Uh, we have Grey Street, uh, named after Governor Grey, which, OK, quite not so military. Uh, down in Greerton, um, on the way down off Fraser Street, we have a little, little road called Esk Street. That's named after the naval ship, the Esk, where the naval soldiers beached their boat before they ran up the hill to fight in this Battle of Gate Park. So Esk Street, named after the boat that carried the troops. Just over 20 years ago, I was part of a group that um, went on to the Elms to have some prayer and to talk about this particular problem. And I just happened to be there at a moment in time, a moment in history, where the first Māori Komatua, first Māori leader, Monty Ohia Jr., since passed away, came on to the elms. The first time in 145 years that a Māori leader had come on to the elms since the Battle of Gate pa. And It was a very, very moving time, a very powerful time. Now, what happens as a result of these wars is that um, land was taken. Remember the New Zealand Settlements Act? Uh, the Tainui people lost half a million hectares of land. Okay. As a result of all those wars, one and a half million hectares of land was taken from the Bay of Pliny and all areas around this. This area where we live now... Uh, Ngāri Hangarau and Nadi Hangarau Marae and uh, Nadi Kahu have 300 acres. Basically the land that this church is on times 100. That's all they've got left because their land too was confiscated. Out at Pitiarco, Tapuna, the Maramatanga rugby ground. Some of you might have been out there, just past the Tapuna school. That's where you're from, you know the one. Well, they too have only 300 acres of land, as a as a legacy of their participation in these battles. And uh, land was confiscated all the way through Taranaki. If, if you if you're like me, I remember when I first bought my house. the First house I bought was in Judea, and I noticed that on the title, it talks about the, uh, the te papa lease. We're actually leasing the land off the Māori, but they'll get it back in a 1,000 years. It's a 1,000-year lease. So that's all cool. Though. Leases are great. You get the land back eventually, don't you? Does this sound good to you? Anybody here like to sell their land and sign up for a 1,000-year lease? Okay. So what I'm saying here is that When we hear stories in the news about the Treaty of Waitangi and the settlements that are being made to different tribes, and we go, man, what are those guys moaning about? Can't we just live together in one happy nation? Can't we just be friends and forget about the past? Can't we learn to do a bit of forgiveness and just get over it? well, that's easy, isn't it? You know, if Caleb jumped up here, smacked me in the head and then said, forgive me, I'll be going, oh, I don't know if that's a really nice way to finish this fight. <laughs> you know? So what I'm saying is, is that as a nation, we have a tremendous opportunity to put the wrongs of the past right. And Māori have been incredibly gracious. If they were to have returned to them what has been taken from them, uh, this nation would be bankrupt and probably at some level some form of uh, civil war would break out. But what they're looking for largely is an acknowledgement of the wrong done to them. That is, That sorry we've wronged you has a huge amount of healing in it. And then, of course, anything we can do to return land, to rectify the wrong, to put finances back in a place where future generations of, of Māori can actually uh, excel, where they can grow, where they can learn, where they can become uh, you know, New Zealanders with the advantages that some of us, like myself, was born to, without even realising it. You know, as a, as a male, pale, stale Pākehā, um, I have huge amount of advantages. Doors open for me and I didn't even know they opened for me. Schools, education, jobs, opportunities, these things are all at my feet in ways that uh, I have advantages at over over pretty much anybody in this nation. And what we're trying to do is rectify the past and reconcile that and bring together what it is that we are meant to be. And the most important thing I want to say tonight is that as the church, remember, we were the midwife to this treaty, and it's a good treaty. And for us as Christians, uh, the Bible tells us this, and I just want to read this to us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, if God has made peace with us, as he has through his death on the cross, then he gives us that same ministry, that same responsibility, To be agents of reconciliation, and for me, I I just, I just want to, I just want to say, I just want to put my, my, my stake in the ground and say that as long as it is up to me in any area of influence that I can bring to our nation, I'm going to work tirelessly to ensure that we as a nation realize realize our full potential by bringing together the mother and the father in reconciliation. To allow for things of the past to be healed, for apologies to be forgiven, restitution to be made in any way possible. And I invite you to that journey. I invite you to that journey. And if something that I've said tonight stirred you up and you're going, Oh, this all sounds a little bit PC, it all sounds a little bit weird. Just go read any New Zealand history book you can find. And you'll soon discover why it was never taught to you at school if you're my generation, particularly. Because, quite simply, it's embarrassing. It hurts. So that's why I'm committed to this. we stand in prayer, and the music team's going to come out and lead us in a song. Father, we, um, we come before you tonight, and... Uh, I know men and women here, different nationalities, Māori, Pākehā. And Lord, history would suggest to us that we should draw battle lines and slug it out and argue. But in a spirit of reconciliation, Lord, we come before you tonight. And we say, God, heal this nation. Thank you for what you're doing by healing our nation. Thank you that you're in the process of healing our nation. And for any of us, Lord, who are recovering racists, who have had prejudice poured into us or has come out of us, we come before you tonight, Lord, and we ask your forgiveness. For we too have been victims of misinformation, misinformation, or no information. And on that basis, Lord, we've we've judged, we've made false accusations, we've failed, we've hurt, we've taken advantage, and we've missed what our story really is. And so, God, with a sense of humility. I present this story tonight about our city, about our nation, in the hope that we can grow a greater measure of understanding of where each other has come from. So we bless you, Lord. We thank you that you give us that spirit of reconciliation. And our hope, above all hopes, is that this nation would rediscover its roots, its Christian roots, that sovereign work of your spirit moving upon our land. Lord, we come to you and we say, breathe again. Breathe afresh upon our nation. Do what you can do, what we can't do. Move in power and move in love that we might be one people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.